Welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've joined us. The first millennial is running for president in 2020. But so are members of the silent, the baby boomer, and the Gen X generations. So what does that mean for the rest of us, the voters? If you're a millennial, does that mean you're supporting Pete Buttigieg? Or are you considering progressive candidates like Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders, who are much, much older than you are? If you're a baby boomer, what has your experience taught you about how to select the right candidate for the job? Today, we want to look at how different generations are looking at the 2020 race and the issues that matter to Gen Z, millennials, Gen X, and baby boomers. And of course, we want to hear from you. Today, we have an all-female panel, and each member is from a different generation and ready to talk about the issues that are helping them to shape their decisions before heading to the ballot box next year. This is the first of many conversations about generational values and politics that we want to have ahead of next year's election. And since there are still so many Democratic candidates vying for the nomination, we are going to keep our focus there from the hour. So we want to hear from you about how you think about your age and the generation you're part of when you analyze political choices. Is age a real influencer for you? Is age something you never think about? And talk about the way that you relate to voters of other generations. If you're a boomer, what do you think of millennials and Gen Xers and the way that they're making decisions? And vice versa, if you are a younger person in America, what do you think about the way that boomers or Gen Xers are making their decisions? As always, the number on the phones here is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and we'll work you into the conversation. And as I said, we've got an all-female panel here today, each member representing a different generation. I think this is going to be a really interesting conversation about the 2020 presidential election. So uh, let's start with Brooke Solomon. She is a 12th grade student organizer at Castech in Detroit. She was a main organizer and speaker at the March for Our Lives Detroit. Brooke, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, thank you for having me. Yes, we've also got Misha Stallworth. She is a member of the Detroit Board of Education. Misha, welcome to the show. You've been here before. I have. Good morning. <laughs> I'm happy to be back. That's right. Uh, Ann Lewis is an activist and artist from Detroit, and she is part of the generation that I call home, Gen X. Ann, welcome to the studio. Thanks for having me. And Sheila Cockrell is the CEO of Citizen Detroit, a former Detroit City Council member and someone who has been part of politics in this town for a really long time. She is a member of the baby boomer generation. Sheila, welcome yes, back to the studio. Absolutely proud to be. Yeah, it's really great to, to have you guys here. All right. So I in preparation for today's show, I was looking around on Google for articles that would to help frame the issues for us. And I went to Google and just typed in generational politics 2020. And I just want to, there was so much there that I couldn't go through all of it and, and pull out things that I wanted to talk about. But just reading the headlines from some of these things, I think will help get us started. The first, the very first entry says the 2020 primary is millennials versus 
boomers. Choose your side. I couldn't, I couldn't believe uh, that was uh, the, the headline. Uh, the second one says, young Democrats may control the political future. Third one is, in 2020, millennials and Generation Z could force politicians to deal with climate change. So it's not just us here at Detroit Today who are thinking about this issue. There's lots of people thinking about it. There's lots of people writing about it. I want to start with the four of you talking about the way in which you think age influences not just the way you vote, but the way you think about politics and the way you engage with politics. And I am going to start with our youngest member, Brooke Solomon. Tell us uh, how you uh, tell us about the activism that you're involved in and how age influences that. So I'm involved in a lot of things around the city and on a national level. And I think that that really influences the way that I deal with politics and especially the 2020 elections. Um, a lot of the work that young people are doing now is very grassroots and it's also deeply rooted in social media. So that's where we get a lot of our stuff from. That's how we advocate for ourselves and get our information out there. Um, so, yeah, like we, our generation, Generation Z, is just this this massive group of kids who are just ready to activate and be ready for change, the change that needs to come. So talk about when you say the word change, what is it that you're anticipating needs to change and what do you think is possible to change? So I think that in my short 17 years of living, <laughs> um, my generation has seen like a lot of stagnant politics, uh, politicians who are just very like stuck um, sitting in the same position, like not doing anything, just occupying space. Um, and when we talk about change, we're talking about new ideas, new people, new people, younger people advocating for the future. And that means, you know, climate action. That means affordable health care. That means affordable housing and student leadership, making sure that students and young people are at the forefront of movements and politics. Mm. So, Sheila Cockrell, one of the things that always strikes me when I talk to members of Brooks' generation is that if we would go back to the time when you were her mm -hmm. age and talk about the things that were happening in this country, talk about the issues that people were really concerned about, and talk about the activism that people were attracted to and trying to build, it's almost like looking in a generational mirror. 100%. Uh, I, I, I agree with that uh, analysis, Stephen. The, I, I think back at what was I doing in 1967 and 1968, um, and how did I view the world, and how did I view people who were older than I was, uh, who, were, who saw themselves as involved and engaged. And my sense of the people in that era was, you're moving too slow, you've been around too long, you had the chance to change it. You haven't. And therefore, I did something really interesting. I voted for Eldridge Cleaver for president. And who did we get? Richard Nixon. <laughs> and I actually didn't quite turn out the way you are. Correct. <laughs> and what did I find out? That you can protest and you can feel good about it. And it is a statement of sorts. But at the end of the day, the process for making change requires a collaborative, multi-generational um, experience. I think today there's an added real problem with the, the polarization that's built into politics in a manner and shape and form that it was not. There were divisions, obviously, but this sort of them versus us taken to the extreme changes the, the sort of the, the 
framework, the architecture of how anybody engages. So, so do you feel like that's worse today than it was in the 1960s when it seems to me the stakes for the issues that people were divided over were at least as high as they are now? What the difference would be is that I think then as opposed to now, there was the possibility that if you didn't even if you didn't agree with somebody 100 percent, you could find some place where there was common ground today. You're either with us or you're against us. And there's no space um, in the sort of the, the political culture for like. That's why I think some of this guy that just won in Kent, Kentucky, his mess, his message sounds revolutionary when he says, you know, there's right and wrong, not left and right. Hmm. Interesting concept. Yeah. Uh, Misha Stallworth, you are a millennial. Uh, give us a sense of how age and the generation that you're part of influences the way that you engage with the, the political process. Sure. I always like to be clear that I'm an older millennial. Um, a lot of people don't realize that millennials have two waves very similar to the boomers. And so there are people who are 23 who are millennials and I'll be 31 in November. And the issues or the way we engage in our issues are different. But even the way, you know, the Internet hit us is different. Right. Like I used Netscape as my first Internet <laughs> browser. You know, a lot of people were 23. They were already, you know, using They would not Google. remember that. Right. right. It, it just or it just would not have um, shaped the way that they engage in it uh, in the way that it shaped me and a lot of my peers. So I, I think that that's important because similar to when we talk about like the black voter, there is this broad brush of millennials um, that is just not actually reflective of the diversity across, you know, decades mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. people. Um, but I do think one one thing that I have found is kind of in common, at least among the folks who are a little older, is this sense of, you know, impending doom. It, like everything feels like there's a ticking clock on it. And so on one hand, you're kind of like, I'm going to do this work and try to make things better. But also everything's on fire. And so, you know, what? I'll try to put out a fire. I'm also going to try and live my best life while I can. <laughs> um, and and so negotiating that um, every day, it, you know, is challenging. But at the same time, it makes it hard to feel urgent about everything. You know, it's like if everything's important, then nothing is. Mm. So trying to do those pri- that prioritizing, I, I see as a challenge among people who are my age. Uh, Ann Lewis, you are a member of my generation, uh, and I can remember when we were coming of age, uh, there was a lot of skepticism about how effective we would be, whether we would even like hold jobs or uh, <laughs> contribute in any way to society. I mean, they're, they're, we were kind of a, uh, uh, a lost generation in the eyes of people who were older than than we were. I, I wonder how you have sort of navigated the time between then and now uh, to come to sort of think about politics and activism and engagement uh, through the lens of, of Gen X. So I sort of came of age during the invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, and kind of coming from being completely oblivious to politics and seeing tens of thousands of people protesting this war that I was told by my parents was like required. Um, you know, it really gave me and my, um, my friends an opportunity to, to have that shift in perspective and really recognize how perhaps the people who are in positions of power may be totally misguided. Um, and it really, I think, gave our generation a deep distrust of 
people in power. Um, and so from there, my work has always sort of been challenging that and looking at, you know, just because they're in positions of power doesn't mean that they actually know what's going on. And it turns out most of them don't. Um, and so, you know, I think we've just, we've been pushing for these kind of conversations for so long. And I think, you know, having this cross-generational uh, group of people who are angry and upset and working towards change is exactly what Sheila was saying. Like, that's how it gets done. It doesn't get done by one generation doing what they're doing. It's about all of us working together, maybe on their, our own issues, but like really as a coalition, moving everything forward. Hmm. Uh, I, I want to get to the 2020 presidential race, but I also want to get the phones going here. If you are somebody who's thinking about the 2020 presidential election and thinking about it from the standpoint of how old you are right now or which generation you're part of or how old the candidates are or what generation they're part of, uh, give us a call and tell us how you think that uh, will shake out next year as we choose a new president or maybe choose the same president that we have. I'm not sure everyone is uh, really enthusiastic about that. Um, Give us a call at 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. Do you think the generation you fall under matters when you're making decisions at the ballot box? You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and we'll work you into the conversation. Also give us a call and tell us if you think this whole idea of generational approaches to politics is nonsense. If you think age has nothing to do with the way that you make decisions or that other people make decisions. Before we get to calls and comments, I want to give our panelists a chance to start talking about 2020 and the presidential contest that's shaping up the field that is shaping up. Uh, what do you think about it? And is there something about your generation that acts as a filter when you're thinking about the people who would be president? Uh, again, Brooke, I'll start with you. Yes. So I'm very, very excited about the 2020 presidential elections. It'll be my vote, first time voting. Your first vote, right? Yes. <laughs> I think that's uh, true for a lot of kids in my generation, you know, seniors in high school. Um, but I think that it's so interesting being a Gen Zer and being really active um, in politics and on social media and seeing how this all plays out. Like, I'm so surprised at how things are going. I think that our my generation, especially, like, when we um, start to look at uh, who and where, like, a lot of um, inner-city black and brown kids like myself are so progressive um, in the way that we look at politics and the way that we're going to vote. So we're definitely leaning towards people like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, but social media has definitely acted like a filter. We as Gen Zers are so quick at finding flaws. We can find anything, anything you've done 50 years ago, 25 years ago, last week, like we will find it out and we will blast <laughs> you for it. And I think that that's really helpful. I mean, I don't know. Obviously, everyone has flaws. You know, everyone is going through stuff. But um, I think that it's very helpful for um politics to be transparent, especially on social media. So so uh, talking about Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, two members of a very different generation than your own. And uh, there's been a lot of discussion during the campaign so far about how old they are and whether they can relate to younger people. Tell me what it is about them that for you, I guess, overcomes the generational barriers that people assume you, you would have to candidates like that? I think it's just it just comes down to their policy and like 
their track record, especially when it comes to Bernie Sanders, like he his fight um, can really be compared to the fight of you know young activists today. Like we're we're also passionate about climate action. We want to be able to go to college and not come out with in you know hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. And so I feel like we can really relate to that. And although it's kind of like interesting because you know he's way older than us, at the end of the day. We're a generation who wants to see like this systemic change and we're going to go for whoever is offering that. Hmm. Yeah. So, Sheila, Brooke was just talking about this idea of vetting candidates in part by finding things about finding things out about them and blasting them on social media, which is something that uh, that you and I as as young people would never have had available to us. Sure. Social media didn't exist. And I know you're somebody who's. Uh, of course, really active on social media, and it's a big part of your work at Citizen Detroit. But I also know you're someone somewhat skeptical of the value of that kind of interaction. Right. Well, first of all, I think what's part of what's happened is that the entire um, platform on which we engage in in political activity has been shaped by um, the cynicism that has been the hallmark of U.S. politics following. Um, Citizen United, the ability for dark money to influence and affect all of us. So I'm not surprised that folks think it's really a heavy-duty political action to do a gotcha moment, and it may feel really good, whether it's on social media or in standing up at a council meeting or a city charter meeting, but at the end of the day, that is not, in my judgment, going to effectuate the kind of coalitions that you need to create real change. So transparency, I'm 100% for. But if everybody's going to get held to the standard, and I would sort of urge younger people to think about how you're going to feel in 25 years when some picture of you on Instagram doing something that at 35 is not going to look as cool as it did at 17, how you're going to like it if you're then judged in, in some very fundamental way about what they what was found out about you that got you I, I just the whole platform of gotcha politics doesn't create real change and i think what we all have to do in 2020 is figure out what's our primary goal what what do we need to do what do people care about the most is it getting rid of the current occupant of the white house or is it pushing the set of ideas that i most um fervently believe in, and how do I marry those two? Hmm. So, so, Sheila, what are you seeing when you look at the 2020 field, the Democratic field, for president? Are, are, is there something about their age or their generation that appeals to you or that doesn't? I mean, I, I love some of the, I mean, I, first of all, I'm aware of people's age, and but for me, it's not a determiner at all. I mean, Number one. Number two, the field um, is one that represents a continuum of ideas. Um, there's n- there's nobody in that pool of people that I would say, oh, my goodness, I'd have a hard time voting for on the Democratic side. Um, but there's nobody at the moment that I'm like saying, yes, me personally, this is the person that I want to see, uh, see, see as, as the standard bearer for the Democratic Party against the standard bearer for the Republicans. You're still waiting. Yes. Are, are Actually, you- it's very simple. Who is going to – I have to be strategic here or careful because of the nonpartisan nature of Citizen Detroit. Sure. 
But we're asking you as a citizen. As a citizen, the only thing I care about is getting rid of the rot in the White House. I think there are a lot of voters who are approaching it in the same way. Right. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to hear from the rest of our panel about the 2020 Democratic field, and we are going to get to your calls. Aaron in Jefferson Chalmers, Gary and Allen Park, Laura in Ann Arbor, David in St. Clair Shores. We will get to you next as well. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We're talking this hour about generational politics and the ways in which age influence not only our decisions about who we vote for at the ballot box, but also the way we interact with one another about politics. Today, we've got an all-female panel uh, Digging into that question, they each member is a, diff- a member of a different generation in this country. We have a baby boomer with us, Sheila Cockrell, who is the CEO of Citizen Detroit and a former Detroit City Council member. We have Misha Stallworth, who is a member of the Detroit Board of Education and a millennial. Ann Lewis is an activist and artist from Detroit and a member of my generation, Gen X. And Brooke Solomon is a 12th grade student organizer at Castec in Detroit. She is what they are calling Gen Z. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Tell us how you sort through age and generational politics when you're thinking about politics and policy issues in this country. Also, tell us how you're thinking about the 2020 presidential election and the emerging democratic field that we will start voting for in just a few months. How is age influencing your your opinion of those candidates? How is it influencing your take on issues as you make your decisions before we go vote next year? You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll try to work you into the conversation. Before we uh, took the break, uh, we were talking about how our panel is seeing the 2020 race. We got through two of our members, but I want to get to the other two. Now, Misha Stallworth, uh, talk about how you are seeing the the 2020 field. Are there candidates who appeal to you? And what role does age and generation play in the way that's unfolding for you? I wouldn't say that I'm particularly excited about anyone. Um, I think in general, I'm, I'm leaning towards Elizabeth Warren And a lot of it, though, has to do with access to information about people's policies and plans. So you can't just rely on the 24-hour news cycle. Um, It's too influenced by, like, reality TV culture. It's too sensationalized. It's too much. Um, And then for me, people, policymakers who are willing to make their information accessible and then therefore put them in a position uh, for accountability from the public is important to me. And so when you just explore these people's websites, 
um, you can see a, a very specific distinction between who is actually putting information out there that you could review and check out and, and compare um, and who is not. But I'm not I'm not particularly excited about anyone. I mean, the, the issues that matter to me have have to do with poverty and um, no one in particular talks about poverty for real. Um, even when we talk about affordable health care, we're not talking about the fact that there aren't doctors in impoverished communities um, and that some of these plans don't incentivize doctors to come to those impoverished communities. Mm-hmm. So give me health care all I want, but <laughs> if I got to <laughs> drive two hours to get to the doctor um, or a good doctor at that, you know, who isn't going to, you know, give me a pelvic exam while I'm under anesthesia, uh, non-consensually, because we just had to pass that law yesterday mm-hmm. for some reason. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these are the things that I'm that I'm concerned about, and that I don't hear people talking about um, with any sort of meaningful um, plans or consideration. So I'm like, okay, here's some information I can find. It makes sense. I can go in this direction for now. We'll see what happens. Um, you know, I, just listening to you talk about this in the context of the democratic field that's emerging reminds me of the way I felt in in 1992, which was the first election where I was able to vote. And and we had a lot of really good, strong candidates, I thought, in, in the democratic primary, which was where I was voting at that point. Um, and, but by the time we got to the general election and the choice was between George H.W. Bush, who was the president, and Bill Clinton, who was the, the governor of Arkansas, I, I really felt left out of the process and the choices. I really felt like there wasn't somebody I could really identify with or who I thought was going to do the things that I really thought needed to be done at that time. And of course, I could make distinctions between George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton, but those distinctions didn't strike at the things that mattered the most to me. So I think that's not an uncommon, it's not an uncommon problem to have. Yeah, I mean, and I think the other thing for me that is really important is policymakers who actually do change their opinion sometimes once they get new information that's reliable um, and that tells them something new about who they're trying to serve. And so for as silly as a question from the CNN debate is about, you know, who would we be surprised your friends with and how have they influenced you? Like, I hated the question. But then at the same time, to listen to this line of people tell me that I'd be surprised that they're friends with someone they've worked with for 30 years and it hasn't actually changed their opinion at all. They just, you know found a place for a vegan and a person who eats steak to have dinner together. <laughs> that that doesn't tell me that you actually can take in new information and consider how that impacts your policies. Mm. Uh, Ann Lewis, I'm curious about how you're looking at the 2020 uh, presidential field. Sure. So um, I've always leaned super progressive, but I think the thing, the main issue that I'm really looking at right now is women's reproductive rights. And nobody's talking about it. Nobody. Um, I was at a Bernie Sanders rally here a couple of weeks ago, and when he mentioned it, he got the longest set of applause that he had for the entire, every issue that he talked about. And it's like uh, abortion, some sort of like radioactive word that nobody wants to say. Like Kamala Harris was saying reproductive rights, reproductive justice, but nobody wants to talk about the fact that 
50% of our population might, you know, not have the autonomy that we've, we've known and um, need um, for the last 50 years. And this is like a huge issue. This not only affects our autonomy, but this also affects poverty. This affects so many different levels, healthcare, all of these things. Um, and it's, it's a huge issue that nobody's discussing. And it's really upsetting. So I think a lot of people assume, though, that among Democrats, this is a settled issue and that there isn't anything to talk about. I, I assume you don't make that assumption. Um, well, you know, uh, it's going through the Supreme Court right now. Um, it could be gut. Roe v. Wade could be gutted. Abortion case, yeah. in front of the court. Which is term. exactly the same as a case they heard a couple of years ago. It was just in Texas. Now it's in Louisiana, but we have a conservative court. So, how is um, the next president of the United States going to fight for my rights as uh, someone with a uterus to um, have autonomy and have the ability to make choices for my life? Like. How do you go back against that? How do you roll back these rules? You know, and Michigan is a trigger state right now. If if Roe v. Wade gets overturned, Michigan will automatically Ill- criminalize criminalize abortion. abortions. Right? Yeah. No, that's already that's right. already been decided. Right? So you know, like this is a very real issue that it's just sort of everybody's talking about jobs and healthcare and all these things, but also this impacts like every aspect of our lives. Yeah. Uh, I want to get to some listener comments here. We've got a lot of people who want to participate in this conversation. NGS on Twitter says, generations are influenced by the environment they grew up in, but you'll always find plenty of counterexamples to the generalizations about a specific generation's approach to politics, i.e., my generation has social warriors versus social warrior haters. Lou on Facebook says, as a late-stage boomer who grew up under the existential crisis that was the Cold War, and used the phrase, don't trust anyone over 30, I see the similarities across the generations, not the differences. Using characterizations created by Wall Street marketing firms to sell advertising is no way to analyze the body politic. Sincerely, an OK Boomer. Uh, nice use of that, uh, that trending phrase. Lou, let's uh, go to the phones. we got a lot of folks who want to talk about this. Let's start with Laura and Ann Ann Arbor. Laura, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Sure. Go ahead. So ever since the 2016 election, I've been highly um, skeptical of any sort of social media meme. And so now that I'm seeing this OK Boomer phrase come up in uh, dialogues that kind of want to shut down the voice of that generation, I'm just, I don't know, I'm just very skeptical that it is going to polarize um, our elections again coming into 2020 and uh, similar to a lot of the way social media was used to undermine the 2016 election. And so so do you then not see generational differences as significant or do you think they are significant but are just kind of being misused? I think they are significant. I think it is, I think we need to tread with trepidation whenever we are dismissive of a generation, similar as a lot of millennials don't want to be grouped as a quote-unquote millennial Mm -hmm. because of the negative undertones that have kind of overwhelmed that phrase or, you know, that that generational term, Um, I think we need to be very 
conscious of doing the same thing to baby boomers. To older generations, yeah. Laura, I, 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 it just go ahead. makes me uneasy. It just makes me yeah. really uneasy because I don't want to have another, uh, I, I mean, I don't want Trump to win 2020. <laughs> Laura, I think that's a really interesting observation. I'm glad you called and, and made it. I'll open it up to the panel. Are we making too much of the differences between generations? Are we allowing uh, people to manipulate that into division that doesn't exist in really substantive ways? Uh, who would like to have well, that? Well, I, I think we've we've made division an art form. I mean, it's sort of one of the hallmarks of political engagement is to figure out and certainly here in Detroit, we have truly made it an art form. We can do east side, west side, downtown, midtown, neighborhoods, et cetera. I think at the end of the day, everybody needs to figure out what it is that we have in common. I mean, I'm a, I'm a proud baby boomer. I was part of a very, an activist culture. I mean, we spent our lives in demonstrations against the war in Vietnam, et cetera, et cetera. But I also have to acknowledge the fact that right now, most many of the people who are the core base of the current occupant of the White House are my generation. They're the other part of the continuum. So rather than saying, okay, boomer, or okay, millennial, let's figure out how we, we work together so that we can find a common objective, whatever that is, and achieve it. Hmm. Uh, Misha, I, I hear all the time people dismiss millennials for being millennials and for the the stereotypes that we have about them that they want everything now and won't work for it and won't wait for it uh i I wonder how that falls on your ears and whether it kind of inspires you to 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 see the generational differences as more important than maybe they ought to be i mean for me i'm exhausted by the obsession with millennials uh like and I get that millennials and boomers are huge portions of the, of the population, but every other day there's a headline about you know boomers killing something, and then millennials are killing the economy. You know, every day, <laughs> and most of it is unfounded and again just sensationalized. And there's a reality that in our country there are very few spaces where we actually connect with people across age, especially across you know 30, 40 years of age. And so when I see those memes and things, I question where those interactions are even happening. Are, are they even um, totally real or is this a passing interaction you had or is it a reaction to an article you read? You know, how many times have you actually sat down with someone who's 70 and had them say these things to you or had a real <laughs> conversation about your life? Or are you um, just reading it somewhere, right? Yeah, and I'm very fortunate in the sense that I do have these relationships with people of, of different generations, but I know a lot of my friends don't. And I also know from working in aging that a lot of people don't have those relationships and aren't having those conversations. And so I think to Sheila's point, there is something else kind of driving behind the scenes, this polarization that doesn't need to be there. Uh, again, Laura, thanks very much for the call and the comments. Let's go to Maya in Detroit. Maya, welcome to the show. Good morning. Um, so I'm a millennial. I am 37 years old. And the first time that I was able to vote was with the Bush-Gore fiasco. Mm-hmm. Um, so that really shaped the way um, the way I saw politics, 
the way I saw um, what party do I do I want to associate myself with. Mm. Um, so that that just completely like embedded skepticism within me. Mm. So um, so honestly, I never even voted until last year wow. because I was so scarred. Really? I was like, no, they're going to lie, and my vote doesn't count. And there's but you know, but I just voted for the first time last year um and i still feel i feel like i'm compromising myself like it's not going to do anything they'll pick who they want to pick anyway you know so that that has discarded me but i'm going to vote now no i hope you do yes you need to get out and vote (laughs) every time you have the opportunity let's make that clear shout out to you for your first time (laughs) right right no that's right keep it up uh maya i appreciate the call and the comments uh, Brooke Solomon, I wonder if, as somebody who's about to cast their first vote, if the things that you see in terms of the way things turn out when people vote, 2016, I think, is is a really interesting example in the sense that far more people voted for the Democratic candidate for president than voted for the Republican. And because of the way that uh, we have uh, set up our republic, it, it didn't matter. The, the the person who got the fewer votes ended up winning the election. I wonder if that that sort of con- commute, communicates that same kind of skepticism to, to people of your generation that Maya is talking about when the last time that happened, which was in, uh, in 2000. Yeah, um, I definitely can understand where Maya is coming from and I definitely do feel that skepticism from me and from my generation. Um, When the 2016 elections happened, I was a freshman in high school, so I was already, you know, going through a lot. And then with that, I was like, wow, we we won the popular vote, but we didn't win the the presidency. Like, what's going on? How does that work? Um, (laughs) Yeah. So I feel like that also created a rift in my generation where a lot of people were like, yeah, we see this happening. We're going to be able to vote next time. But like, clearly it doesn't matter. So what's the point? And then while the other half of us were like, see, this is what we're trying to change. This is where we're going to activate. Um, and I think that it's it's created this interesting situation where we're trying to like merge those two. And I feel like my generation has a pretty good understanding about, you know, voting like voters are still disenfranchised, like there's still voter suppression um, and that you're not going to like vote away systemic racism Mm -hmm. or like you're not going to vote away capitalism or fascism, but voting is a quick and easy process for some. It should be for all process um, that can help people, our most marginalized people in this country. And I think that's, that's the wave that we need to get a lot of our generation on. Uh, And Lewis, uh, our generation, Gen X, was was labeled for a long time as very skeptical of everything, not just politics. Uh, I, I wonder, and, and I think we had lots of reasons to be skeptical. I think there were lots of things. I mean, if you think of uh, the things that happened when we were younger in this country, particularly around the Nixon presidency, which is sort of the beginning of of political awareness for some of us, uh, I, I wonder how you as an artist and activist kind of overcome that generational skepticism that they assign to us. Um, I've always been skeptical. Since day <laughs> You're one. still skeptical. I'll always so be skeptical. I. I think. <laughs> right. I think. I think healthy skepticism is necessary in a, in a country where our electoral system doesn't necessarily represent 
the population, right? I mean, you saw it with the DNC in 2016 as well as, you know, uh, last year or last election, 20 or the actual general election in 2016. So um, you have to stay skeptical and you have to be speaking truth to power and always pushing back when things don't necessarily um, go the way they're supposed to. And, you know, I think like considering how we could, you know, renegotiate the electoral college is something that we've been talking about for years. And again, you know, once you get into power, you have no reason to change the structure that got you into it. So if we're not you know, bringing people into positions of power, into Congress, into state legislatures or whatever um, that want to transform that, um, there's no way that it's ever going to change. So, you know, we have to be able to elect people that are willing to to do the hard work. Okay, we're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue our intergenerational conversation about politics as we get into the presidential election in 2020. We want to continue to hear from you. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, communicate with us there, and we'll try to work you into the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We're talking this hour about interrational, intergenerational differences between the way that we think about politics. Uh, we're thinking about that in the context of the 2020 presidential contest, which is just underway, but is also about to heat up in just a few months when people start to cast ballots. Does your age or the generation that you're part of influence the way you think about politics and make choices at the ballot box? If you want to join the conversation, give us a call, 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. We've got an all-female panel of four folks from around Metro Detroit here, each from a different generation, uh, talking about the ways in which they make these decisions and whether age is one of the influencers. Before we get back to the conversation, I want to read, we've got a lot of social media comments about uh, this conversation. David on Twitter says, as a millennial, I see things globally and think it's a chance to build team with Generation X. They inherited a global view that was exclusively economic exploiting of third world at the expense of poor abroad and middle class here. Use Green New Deal for better jobs for workers. Uh, JY on Twitter says, we need grassroots for real intergenerational spaces where we can get real with each other and not just pay lip service to dialogue. Thanks for this conversation. JY, you are welcome. I'm glad you are listening and participating. Patrick on Twitter says, it's been my experience that many members of the baby boomer generation downplay the issues faced by millennials and Gen Z. After mass shootings, our generation has offered thoughts and prayers rather than solutions. As the sea levels and global temperatures rise, we're told that climate change, quote, isn't real. Uh, let's go to back to the phones here. Uh, Aaron and Jefferson Chalmers, what's on your mind? Good morning, Stephen. Hey. Uh-huh. I am an old millennial. I was born in 82. I don't really feel like I'm part of the millennial or the Gen X generation. You're kind of a tweener, say, yeah. <laughs> a tweener. They call it Oregon Trail 
generation. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's love a good me one. some Oregon Trail. <laughs> generation Catalano, but I wanted to say that I don't think that the age of a candidate may be the issue that it's made out to be in the popular press, and I think that's evident by the success of Bernie Sanders, who is an older gentleman among people who are young and old, especially in the state of Michigan, where he, of course, won the Democratic primary mm. last time around. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Aaron, I really appreciate the the call and the comments. I, I want to go back to something that uh, I think JY on Twitter said, this idea of creating intergenerational spaces where we can actually have these conversations. How do we do that? Or do you find that it's actually easier to do that than perhaps the popular media might might portray Sheila well I think some of the the programming that we're we're trying to do with citizen Detroit is to create that space and actually for our our population of participants many of whom are older high-performance voters a common request is can more young people come well then you get into these sort of lifestyle differences you know, we're serving dinner at 530. <laughs> folks aren't, <laughs> folks aren't going to be off the job, millennials and others, till, you know, 7 o'clock. So there's some, some things, some tools that have to be uh, arranged. But I do think it's absolutely an essential part of addressing uh, the 2020. And it is a, I mean, to say it's a, a change election, it is a, 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 a major point of, of fundamental social change in the United States is to do it a disservice. People, we need to find a common voice and, and do what needs to be done uh, to protect democracy. This is a fight for democracy as we know it, as flawed as it is, as horrific as the history of slavery is to the formation of this, of this republic. It is still uh, the best approach for human interaction that we can perfect over time, but we got to preserve it yeah. in order to perfect it. Yeah. Uh, Misha, we should say that you work with Sheila at Citizen Detroit, trying to engage people in the city across generations. But of course, you come at it from a different end of that uh, equation as a, as a millennial. Talk about how you see the possibility of creating spaces for this kind of intergenerational dialogue. I mean, uh, similar to what Sheila just mentioned, the work that we do is driven by that. You know, it's for Detroiters. That's not age dependent. Um, but I also think that when we are looking for spaces to connect with people, in some ways we're deferring our personal responsibility. So whether you're talking about, you know, spaces for racial healing or spaces to talk across generations what we're talking about is having a level of empathy and humility to have a conversation with someone who's different from you and build a relationship. And you can do that walking down the street. You can do that standing at the bus stop. You can do that in your school. You can do that any number of places if you just take on that personal responsibility and accept a little humility to find common ground with people. So on one hand, yeah, we want to create spaces and we want to help facilitate um, taking out some of the emotions that maybe come when you do it on your own, some of the things that might be more heightened. We want to create a space where you feel comfortable connecting and not like you're going to be judged, um, that you're sharing, you know, similar information. But at the same time, you know, nobody had to tell me to go make friends with the people I know who are older. No one had to, I didn't need a space to meet Sheila 
like cultivated. Yeah, our meeting was facilitated, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't like I went to a special meeting (laughs) and they were like, here at this meeting, you're going to meet people (laughs) who are in their 60s and 70s. Okay, and we're going to let you, we're going to give you a list of questions to ask one another. Like, no, (laughs) that's not how we make relationships. (laughs) Yeah, that, that authenticity, Anne, is something that I feel like our generation was really insistent upon this idea that things have to be real for us to even believe in them or participate and that we were quick to say that a lot of things weren't real, that they were kind of forced. Sure. Um, I do need to clarify, I'm also Oregon Trail generation. Oh, you are. Yeah, I'm there in you that go. middle. You're in that tweener, I am a tweener. space as well. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, like we, I look at how um, Gen Z is being raised by people of our age and I'm looking at the relationships between parents and kids and there is such a difference between how they communicate and how my generation communicated with my boomer parents. It was like my road or the highway and that's it. Like there was no, you know, so the skepticism there was just like, well, we're being taught that this is the only way. And in fact, there's like so many different dimensions of how we can communicate. And I think, you know, like what I'm seeing now is so beautiful and so like, so much more gets done yeah. because people can really like hear each other. Yeah. Uh, Brooke? Yeah. So um, I think that with my generation, what we kind of started with in our youth activism is first making spaces for ourselves and cult- cultivating spaces for ourselves where there were no spaces for young people, where we were always told, you know, um, sit down, Go shut sit up. sit down, right? Right. <laughs> um, the adults are speaking, like, uh, be seen and not heard stuff like that like I've been I've heard that my whole life um so it started by making spaces for ourselves within like local organizations like the one that I'm a part of Detroit Area Youth United Michigan shout out to DAM um (laughs) and then like nationwide organizations or movements like the March for Our Lives or the Youth Climate Strike stuff like that high school Democrats um where we like first get in tune with each other and our own leadership and we like are backed by each other and the like we learn together and grow together like we are enough like we are good enough to be in these conversations about politics and social justice and then we're able to engage like at the peak of movements with other generations which I really loved what uh, Misha said about like it's not you know some force like you're in a room with other generations and you have a script like these conversations happen everywhere and anywhere on the street and all it takes is empathy and humility to be like yes you are like way younger than me or you're way older than me, but like we have the same values. We're, we all want the same thing. So, yeah. Okay. Uh, Brooke Solomon, Misha Stallworth, Ann Lewis, and Sheila Cockrell. This was a fantastic conversation. I'm really glad you came to be part of it. Thanks very much. Thank you. <laughs> all right. That's going to do it for me today. I'll be back tomorrow when we're going to have a conversation with MSNBC anchor Alicia Menendez about the risks associated with just being yourself in the workplace especially if you're an ethnic minority. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.